Doc Rivers continues to time and time again not get it when it comes to getting... Oh! Let him play! You bet one one bone to win 19? I'm just, where, what site do you use where you can actually bet one buck? <laughs> they let you do 50 cent bets. Oh my goodness, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, literally, like he dropped Superman down like the drain. Comes out. Like, God damn it, Superman. <laughs> I don't know, honey. I don't know where he got that from. From Los Angeles, this is Dave in the City. Part of the Dit Cow Sports Network. Now, here's Dave Medina. Good evening, sports fans, and a pleasure to have you here for the big golf show. Good to have you with us from the Dave in the City studios at the home of Champion Southern California. It's a beautiful, beautiful day out there, and uh, on this beautiful day, we're going to talk some golf with everybody. I'm looking forward to hearing from everybody and um, and talking about champions. The championship of Phil Mickelson winning the PGA Championship is just wild. I did not. Nobody saw that coming, and we were just I was talking with Andy on the board, and and he, we didn't see it coming either. So um, it, it's going to be a wild time. So let's just get right to it. I don't think there's any reason to waste time over this. Um, we are, we are about to start our PGA Championship recap show, and um, and to start the program, let's just introduce all of our panelists. And of course, we start with. I'm gonna actually. I see Andy in the corner of the screen, so let's just say hi to him first. Uh, how's it going, Andy? I knew Phil was winning. What are you talking? <laughs> oh. I called it. No, <laughs> no I, I'm still waiting for him to collapse. <laughs> no, I hear that. I was, you know, when he hit it in the water, like on the back nine, I thought, oh, here it goes. It's gonna, he's gonna blow it. But you didn't. Got to give it to him. So, good job out of him. So. Um, let's introduce also to the program. We'll lead our way up. John in Connecticut, welcome back. It's been a bit. How are you doing tonight? Doing well, Dave. Yeah, thanks for having us back on. And um, definitely a fun tournament to break break you know break it all down. I don't think anyone saw Mickelson's win coming. And um, yeah, interested to hear everyone's thoughts. It was just it was just a bizarre tournament in a number of ways. So um, excited to get get into the the drama of it all and. Some other stuff I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, we're going to definitely talk about a lot of cool stuff tonight. And Mike had some good ideas uh, in our DMs about what we could do. Um, I definitely want to get into that because with the win, you're talking about a guy who will, who's going to end up having a very clear case for making the top 10, as Mike alluded to. And Mike, let's introduce you now. Mike, welcome to the show. How's it going tonight? Uh, it's going pretty well, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Uh, full disclosure to anyone that m- might listen to this, uh, I will admit I-, I was up at a friend's place outside of Rochester for almost the entire weekend. So I was in and out with the coverage. I drove back Sunday morning. I caught the first few holes on the uh, serious PGA Tour scenario, but I did get back in time to watch from seven on. And then uh, they had a replay on CBS Sports later that night so i made sure to watch the front nine again from uh starting with phil on the first hole from then on so uh you know my viewership wasn't as comprehensive as it was for the masters but you know i I was up on the scenarios the whole weekend well i you know honestly i i was not completely in on the first two rounds but the second two rounds maybe a little bit more but i was in for almost everything on sunday it was certainly 
it was it was very very fascinating to see all that like you know there definitely was an era of like is he going to do this you know throughout the day and then he did so i just got to give him a lot of credit he had a big lead as he was going making the turn for the final nine and held on it's a good spot so um let me we can start with our champion phil mickelson unbelievable he he rises up with his sunglasses on in the daylight in the middle on the golf course and he wins the pga championship he does it with some slick shots especially some shots off the sand i mean i think his scrambling was obviously very good the putter was good to him as far as i know and let's go back to mike and let's just get your keys to to the win i mean you mentioned um, you mentioned a few number, few key categories that in which he excelled. So I'll give it to you for your thoughts on and how he did, how he mastered this incredible moment for a fifty-year-old, the oldest person to win a major, certainly the oldest to win the PGA. It's a, it's pretty remarkable. So uh, you know, let's just let's get your initial outlook on how he did this. Well, Dave, generally there are two types of golf tournaments that draw compelling interest one type is a tournament that has a lot of back and forth action late lead changes dramatic moments down the stretch but tournaments like that don't really live on in history that much unless it's accompanied by a historically significant moment or at least some sort of popular player that sort of lives on in history you know, rising to the occasion or even collapsing uh, in the right occasion. You know, a good example would be uh, the 2011 PGA Championship. That was absolutely crazy with uh, Keegan Bradley and Jason Duffner and Keegan Bradley making a triple bogey down the stretch, but then Duffner imploding and then going to the playoff. But no one really talks about that anymore. You can say the same thing about the 2011 Masters, where Charles Schwartzel birdied the last four holes to win, and you had seemingly a million guys, I mean, not a million, obviously, but five or six guys that could have won that tournament all in the last few holes. But no one really talks about that anymore. But then you have tournaments like the 1997 Masters, which, of course, was over going into Sunday, but it was the arrival of Tiger Woods. You also have tournaments like... Uh, the 2011 U.S. Open, which was essentially over going into Sunday, but it was the arrival of Rory McIlroy winning the U.S. Open by eight shots at 22 years old. This tournament kind of falls in line with the latter two. Now, look, there was a chance that this tournament, it was in the balance on the 18th hole. Phil could have bogeyed, Kepka could have birdied, and we would have been in a playoff. But if we really look at it, um, Phil had a five-shot lead after 10. On 13, he was standing in the fairway with a five-shot lead before he put it into the water. But it, it, in reality, even though it did tighten up, he bought himself enough breathing room where we really didn't have a ton of drama down the stretch. But regardless of that, this is a tournament that is going to live on in history for as long as people are paying attention to golf. You know, even more significant than just becoming the oldest player to win a major to me is that you know, Phil crossed this line, which I think many people thought would never be crossed, which is that a player eligible for the senior tour, which is now called the Champions Tour, if we want to be proper, 
a player eligible for that tour winning a major championship, it's not something that really seemed all that conceivable. Now, of course, Tom Watson came close, but you know, lost in heartbreaking fashion. But this is something, this is a momentous achievement that's really going to live on. And if we want to talk about how unexpected this was or how this really came out of nowhere, you know, this is far, far more of an out-of-the-blue win than either Jack Nicklaus in 1986 or Tiger Woods in 2019, uh, both of those tournaments at the Masters. If you want to look at how, how Phil had done the last couple of years, well, you know, I, I actually took the time to do a little research to get some numbers for this. Now, Phil actually started to play some good golf early in 2017. He was 17th in the world after he won at Pebble Beach. Going into last week, in the two years and, what, three months since then, he had fallen to 115th. He had played 48 events since that win, he had missed the cut 20 times. Now he did have a second place finish and he had two third place, uh, two third place finishes in those 48 events. But besides those, his best finishes were 18th, 21st and 24th. This is a guy who except on a few occasions was not even remotely contending in tournaments. So for him to show up at what was a extremely demanding test of golf and win is not something that I think any rational person could say, well, I thought this would happen. Yeah, you know what? Your heart might have wanted, wanted it to happen. You might have wanted to believe that he could turn back the clock and win, but there was really no rational reason to believe that it could happen. And the fact that something happened this past weekend that really defies reason, defies rational thought, and is something that you could only really conjure up in your heart is a reason why this tournament is going to live on for a very, very, very long time. Very well said, Mike. This is, this is one for the ages for, for everything you said. And, and really adding to you what you were talking about with the challenge of the, this kind of an event. You know, we have a chat, we have a message in our chat on YouTube, if you're watching on YouTube, and it's from VTread. And he said that Russo, meaning Christopher Mad Dog Russo, said this course wasn't going to have anyone go on a big run. Gotta agree. And and this definitely was not an easy course, Mike. I mean, if just really quickly, could you if you if you could follow up on that, like... Did the ocean course seem like a really tough out for a lot of golfers going in? What was your, what's your thought there? If you want to get into that a little bit, sure. This course is unique in that it, it's not a true links course, okay? There's a lot of forced carries. You can't really – you have to attack pins and attack the course through an aerial game, and you got to throw shots high up into the air. That being said, it has a routing like a Lynx in that except for that um, that fifth hole, that par three, which Phil holed out on, essentially all of the holes either play due east or due west. And the entire time that uh, this tournament took place, all four days, we had a steady wind with the wind shifting the final day 
so that the uh, final four holes were downwind sort of into the wind. Although Saturday that the, it was sort of a crosswind in and uh, a crosswind on those last four holes. As a result of that, a lot of the challenges that are inherent in Lynx golf became a challenge at this tournament, which is not something you ordinarily see so much in regular tour events or even non-British Open majors. And one of the reasons Phil won, I think, and uh, I'll give some credit to the uh, people over at the Friday who talked about this, was that if you look at the modern game, the modern game is very much about maximizing efficiency of shots and not so much about playing a variety of shots. But when you're in the wind like that, you have to play a variety of shots. If you hit a fade up into the wind, you're going to lose so much distance that the shot's not going to work. You have to control your trajectory. You have to control fade versus draw. And it's not something that is emphasized as much in the modern game, but it's something that was emphasized when Phil came up, and it's something that Phil really worked on when he tried to build his game up to win the Open Championship. So if you look at some of the stuff Phil did, like on 10, where Phil, being a left-handed player, a draw for him goes left to right, you know, he made birdie on that hole. The pin was on the left side, but he started his ball like left of the green and drew it back in. And I asked him, well, why did you do that? And he goes, well, you know, a, a fade would have given me more green to work with, but if I had hit a fade, I would have lost 30 yards on that. With a draw going into that win, I'd lose 18 yards. And uh, so he, he was doing stuff like that. So it just required a extensive variety of shots that I think someone like Phil is going to be inherently more comfortable doing than your current crop of players. So that is something that the ocean course really brought out, although it was not a true links course and no one was saying that it's supposed to be, it really brought out a lot of challenges that you would ordinarily see in a, in a British open and a British open is a, the, the type of event that an older player really would have the best chance in. Yeah, that's a good observation actually. Yeah. I mean, it certainly looked like a, like a classic, open championship course across the pond there's no there, there's certainly a lot of that whistling straights is another area where it kind of has that feel but um let's go now to the remainder of our crew there's a lot to unpack so i'm going to go to john next uh you'll make your thoughts on phil nicholson's big win yeah i mean improbable will be probably the first word that comes to mind um i don't know anyone that like picked him before the tournament or even said he had a chance i mean you know, if you had said to me, like, could he be a first round leader kind of bet? Like, yeah, like I'm, I'm in for that. I mean, a number of times over the past few years, you've seen him like hop up on the leaderboard for one round, maybe two rounds. And then you're like, all right, now it's time to fade Phil. Like, let's, let's get these juicy prices on the weekend and put some bets in like, against Phil. But um, it wasn't the, I was fully expecting it, honestly, this uh, over the weekend. Um, and, you know, it didn't happen. And I think the, one of the keys to his his victory was his um, play off the tee. And that was one of the things that he had really struggled with, um, you know, over a number of years is that uh, he just could not keep the ball in play. Like, he'd just be spraying it left and right. And, uh, like, I, he didn't finish great on the strokes gained off the tee metric. He still finished positive. So 
it wasn't like a complete disaster. I think some of those tee shots that he hit in the water, um, I think one on Saturday on the 13th and a couple other ones that he, he, he you know, he missed the fairway on and really brought that down. But um, he was like leading that category through two rounds, which was very impressive, especially for the, the way he plays. And, and that was definitely a key to his game. And he, he's always been like great with his short game, great with his, his um, irons. And that was really kind of the kind of thing that's gotten him in trouble over the years. And, that was a big, a big part into his, to his victory. And, um, you know, when, it, when you look at it, like you just, there's a, a lot of points in the course of the two rounds on Saturday and Sunday where you thought, all right, well, here's the, here's the turning point when it's going to all fall apart from him. And when he, he goes up five strokes heading into the back nine on Saturday, um, you know, then he puts it in the water on 13, he drops a couple other shots. And then even on Sunday, the very first hole, it's a swing between him and Kepka, And you're thinking, Oh my goodness. Like, you know, Phil could be on his way to an, to an 80 here. And um, it just didn't happen. He, you know, he hit the shots he needed to hit. The, the one chip that he had on the par three, I think definitely kind of maybe settled him a little bit um, and allowed him to, you know, like, you know, give him determination. Like, you know, I know I can do this. And uh, he, he just played better than everybody else. Like there was no one that really made a, a great move in those last few pairings. Um, you know, Kepka didn't really play that well. Uh, he, he, had, he got off to a pretty rough start. He, he did much better on the back nine, but by that point, he just there's too much ground for him to make up. Uh, Ustazen, again, uh, you know, he put, like, he had some terrible drives uh, into the to water. I think he that same hole, the 13th hole on Saturday. And then again on Sunday, he had some wild drives. He had the same exact shot. Uh, you guys follow golf, so you remember it a couple of weeks back in the playoff at the Zurich Classic. Uh, he puts it in the pond, and they lose. Uh, him and Schwartz will lose. So he really had a great chance. And, he, and if Ustazen had, had made any putts on Saturday, he probably would have won. I think he missed like four three-foot putts. It was truly embarrassing, honestly, for a professional golfer uh, to miss those kind of putts that he did. Like on the 16th hole, he had like a three-footer for birdie, and he just he missed it. It was that, And that was just really took a lot of wind out of his sails. But he really could have won. I mean, he had his chances. Um, and then the other guys, they were just kind of just backdoor, um, you know, backdoor finishes like, you know, Shane Lowry and, uh, and Padraig Harrington out of nowhere for a top top five, Paul Casey, Harry Higgs, all those guys, they never had a chance to win. Um, it was just, you know, uh, we could talk about Harry Higgs, our, uh, you know, our friend Tom in New Jersey had some things to say about Harry Higgs on, <laughs> on Twitter. But in any event, um, yeah, you know, between – Mickelson and Kepka and Ustazen, those were really the only three that had a chance. And Phil just played better than them. And he was he was more steady than all of them in, in the tough conditions. So he certainly earned the win and uh, just an amazing accomplishment to, like, you know, when I started first watching golf, like, when you hit 40, like, you were considered done. Yeah. Like, you're, you're know, just about done. Like, you had maybe a couple good years left. Like, I remember, you know, growing up you know, as a teenager, like, watching the – Kenny Perry winning on tour was just phenomenal. Like he was like, you know, in his forties, like that was an, you know, a great thing. And, but a 50 year old winning a major, like never would have even dreamed that that would be possible. So kudos to Mickelson. Um, you know, what does it mean long-term for him? Like he clearly has a good enough game to hang around on the PGA tour. Like he's not going to be a consistent type of player. Like, I don't know, Colin Morikawa is going to be there in the top 10 or 15 every single week. When he putts, he's going to win. Uh, Mickelson is more of a guy that's kind of like he's going to pop once every year for like a, a tournament like this. Which one's it going to be? Who knows? 
but he still has enough game to, to definitely play obviously on the on, on the main tour and you know it just a, a remarkable win and certainly one that we'll, we'll never forget yeah and, and i completely agree with that uh, it's very well said john i mean i think Mike pointed out one reason why he can still hang in some of these events and it and it goes it speaks to his creativity. His shot creativity is really one of the most fascinating um in, uh, that we've ever seen and we'll get into more the, the, into his career arc later in this program but his ability to to, to scramble to to work with scram- like his scrambling ability has often been very good. And he can be really, really creative. So it's always very interesting to watch him play, especially when he's on. When he's off, it's just it's just ridiculous. But he was on this weekend. And let's go back. To, let's go over to Andy and let's get your take on this incredible moment for Phil Mickelson, which really cements his career. Yeah, I think this is the type of win, you know. Um, you know, it's a, it's a cliche to say, but. It's like- once you win one major, the rest are going to come in bunches. And I think someone like Phil, he finally blew the lid off that. Oh no, we're not talking. We're not talking about Ricky. Fun- no, we're talking about Phil. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that was that was great. Uh, just to echo what the other guys have already said, um, I uh, Mike style. I did not get to see much of the third round. I was playing golf myself, but uh, I got text. And my buddy who gambles on golf uh, was like, Phil was kind of bulletproof again, except for that one hole on thir- you know on thirteen hit in the water, and I was shocked to see it. I was shocked to see Phil not collapse on Saturday, and then I was shocked to not you know to see Phil not gag it up on Sunday. Even more shocking was Brooks Kepka's putting on Sunday. We could probably talk about that later because this is a Phil segment now, but. Um, you know, to John's point about the older people golfing and winning tournaments, I just looked it up now, uh, Funhouse style, not Funhouse style, but just to know, <laughs> I knew he was old, but I didn't know how old, so I just checked. When Darren Clark won the Open in 2011, he was 42, and people made a big deal of that then, you know, uh, look at this 42-year-old guy, and Phil just did that eight years beyond Darren Clark. Now, if a 42-year-old, you know, Tiger winning wouldn't be that'd be a different story, but you know, early forties, even in a span of 10 years is a totally different perception now. Um, and that is, we're all getting older too. We're all getting old, but, um, it just, yeah. Kiowa is a great course. I love any, I'm just a sucker for courses that are on the ocean. Uh, I like the, the wind, you know, everyone's making a huge deal about the wind. Um, especially, as uh, Mike said, it's American Link style, where uh, or not even American Link style, whatever you want to call it. But you know, your traditional Link style is like nine out and nine in. Uh, the way Nance and Nobolo described Kiwa, it's like first five out, four in, or four out, five in, and then the back nine the same way. And then obviously on Sunday, everything just kind of switched. So, you know, when these guys are playing that, you know, the tough long ass par three, three days in a row into the wind. And then on, on Sunday, it's the other way around. And obviously certain players adjusted better than others. The thing about Phil is, uh, as John alluded to, there's no recent form to go by, you know, 
clowns like myself, we just bet without looking at stats sometimes. But with Phil, even the biggest Phil fans, it's like, what are you going off of? Like his uh, two wins on the Champions Tour. Um, he had no – his recent resume on the PGA was almost like a laughing stock. Um, he was always in like featured groups on Thursdays and Fridays. You watch him on the golf channel. And a lot of the times it's just like, Oh man, Phil had a great first round. Now he's barely making the cut. He's going to miss the cut. He's missing all these like three foot putts. He's three putting. He's hitting balls into uh, hazards. He's flubbing shots. He looks like he just wants to get off the course. And that was, but he's going to, you know, make a funny video on Twitter. He's selling his coffee. He's selling the CBD gum. So <laughs> life is good with Phil. But uh, in terms of his actual play, it just wasn't there. But he's saying he's close. He's close. He's close. And even Nance, who's the biggest, he's a huge Phil guy. He's like, oh, you know, it's one thing to have self belief, but even if you could have the strongest self belief in the world, but, you know, it's still a reality. But, he did it. Um, I forget what hole it was. I th- it might have been the first par five on the back nine on Sunday when he just basically knocked it stiff. Um, he was out driving Kepka on the back nine. Uh, one of my other buddies was like, he must have been stoned too. And he's like, look at Phil. He doesn't let Kepka walk ahead of him on the fairway. Phil's playing mind games. I don't know if that was true or not, but you know, Phil's not going to be intimidated by Kepka. Phil's been playing golf far too long. He doesn't care about, you know, like the younger golfer, I don't think, because, you know, Phil, his resume speaks for itself. He had five majors. Uh, he he's thrives in that environment. One thing I did notice is that the dilly-dilly getting the whole mashed potato like the Flame fan, uh, in the beginning of the round, like, they might have been rooting for Brooks, but I mean, it's kind of forgotten about how much of a fan favorite Phil is. So uh, a couple callers were on Mad Dog earlier in the week and was like, Phil winning was actually bad long-term for the game of golf because he doesn't resonate with the younger fan. I'm like, I disagree. I think a lot of meatheads in their 20s like Phil, um, and it definitely showed at Kiowa. The gallery was 100% behind Phil as far especially on that back nine. And uh, he, I lost a lot of money fading Phil, like on three different bets. But at the end, I'm just like, let's watch Phil win this. Yeah. It got to the point where I'm like, he's not going to gag. By the, even when he um, kind of, when he hit the 17th, the par three, when he hit it into the shrubs and like he's, it was a little tease that he might gag it, but, the way Kepka was playing by then, it was it wasn't gonna happen. So even though there was, you know, Kepka Birdie, Mickelson, uh bogey on eighteen was a possibility. I it I just it didn't feel like it was gonna happen. Kepka just uh was just way too erratic on that front nine on Sunday. And Phil, yeah, that things started to get a little weird and like, wow, he might not he might not go belly up when he when he sunk that shot from the bunker, you know. That's Vern Lundquist. They dust him off for the PGA, and he just Phil Mickelson. You know, he does he doesn't have to do much, but he's a legend. So good for Vern. 
Good for him. Good for Phil. It was just like you said, you know, it's funny. I think all three of us had the same feel the entire Sunday. We're like, oh, we're, well, here's the part where he blows it. Well, here's the part where he blows it. And, and it just hasn't happened. It just, he, he just held through through all of it. So props to him. I, we're going to get into Vern Lundquist. I was sh- I was honestly very surprised that he was on the coverage. I thought he was just doing the Masters now, but he did like they didn't have him on enough for me to complain about it. So we'll get to that in more detail later. Um, so instead, let's uh, let's get into the rest of the field, and there is a lot to talk about with this. You could start all the way back, probably like Friday, when um, the guy. I think it was you, Andy, who was talking about Sam Burns. Remember last week we were talking about Sam Burns, and he was he was like the new thing, and he went <laughs> and he pulled out after a round, and he shot like crap. Like it was like, what the heck happened to there? Anyway, let me go to Mike and let's get your thoughts in the field. There's a lot. We have that. We have Brooks Kepka and his knee not taking him down. We have um, we have uh, we have uh, Deshambo being Deshambo being annoying of course and, and a lot more um i will i do have a question from vtread mike and i'm wondering if you might have a, a an answer to this because he was asking you know when you with respect to your monologue why is it sand areas and not traps with the different rules i'm i'm not maybe you might be able to f- fill that in fill us in on that too but uh, let's get your thoughts in the field because there's a lot to talk about there um you know i guess i'll start with that question though I mean, I don't have an exact answer. I I wasn't sitting in the meetings, but my guess is that, look, this court, the ocean course and whistling straights, they kind of have similar designs, right? A lot of native sand areas, a lot of bunkering all over the place. And they have these features where the, the waste sand areas kind of merge in with the the more well-kept bunkers and whatnot. And of course, we all remember what happened at Whistling Straits in 2010, where Dustin Johnson, as Mike Francesa put it, hit his ball into people and then grounded his club in what he thought was just an unkept area, but it was technically a bunker. And then he got a one-stroke penalty, knocking him out of that playoff. And... I I just don't think they wanted the possibility of that happening again. And they figured, look, this is this place. Half the holes are on a sand dune. The other half are in a salt marsh. Um, If they hit the sand, it's a natural area. Let's let them ground the club. And besides grounding your club in a bunker, unless you do something to improve your lie, which would be a penalty in it of itself is not really an advantage anyway. So, but I, I, I do agree that for some bunkers, it really didn't make sense. There were some that were clearly standalone where there wouldn't be a problem. But I guess it was just something for the sake of simplicity so that they don't have some sort of high profile situation where something like that happens, where you confuse a waste area with a bunker and you get a fiasco like you did at the 2010 PGA. Um to get to the field, I guess we'll start with, uh, you know, there were four high-profile people who should have done well. Four high-profile people, I think three should have done well playing here. The fourth we'll talk about. And those four being 
Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, Tommy Fleetwood, Xander Shoffley. All four of them went home on Friday. Now, Dustin Johnson, there's clearly something wrong with him. He's pulled out of a couple tournaments, and he said, well, you know, I'm just trying to get some rest and whatnot, but I think he's clearly nursing some sort of injury that he's just not talking about. So I, I wasn't entirely surprised with what happened to him, but, you know, th- there was a stretch for a while where Dustin Johnson was just, you know, every major you'd have to at least bet on him to be top five, right? He was just playing such consistent high-level golf, but the last two majors, you know, missed cuts. That's very surprising for the uh, world number one. But, again, something's wrong uh, with uh, with him clearly you know Justin Thomas seems sort of tailor-made for this course right extremely long it calls for a lot of precision with your approach shots um we saw what Justin Thomas did at uh sawgrass which just one of the great ball striking rounds you'll ever see and for a place that really seemed tailor-made to his strengths for JT to be gone on Friday is um, also a pretty big surprise. And, you know, generally with him, it's, uh, you know, for him to win the PGA in 2017, he hasn't really done much in majors since then. So it's a little surprising. Tommy Fleetwood, I thought, would have a pretty good sh- uh, chance this week. You know the upbringing in the upbringing in the British Isles, used to the windy conditions. We we saw him play well at Shinnecock, uh, excuse me. And I felt like there would be some sort of translation between that place and this place, but again, he missed the cut. And then, of course, Xander Shoffley, who really has all the game in the world, but. Uh, he did nothing this week, so that was surprising to see. Uh, I'll, I'll throw in a, a couple comments here. You know, Andy alluded to this that well, the, the only thing you go on for Phil in terms of uh, form would be two Champions Tour w- wins. But to really show you how little that would matter, and I don't think any of us are saying that it did matter. Like John Daly has actually been playing pretty well in the Champions Tour the past few weeks, and he came out, I think he shot 85 and 86. So clearly there is really no translation at all between good play out there and good play at the PGA. Of course, he could have been drunk the entire time. Who knows? Um, then the other thing is, honestly, I, I'm, I'm not trying to compare the historical significance of it, but honestly, for Padre Carrington to have a top five as compared to Phil winning, I think, honestly, the odds would have been longer if you were going to ask someone before, what's more likely, Phil winning or Padre Carrington uh, finishing top five? I would have said Phil winning is definitely more likely. So I don't know how the hell that happened. That came out of nowhere. <laughs> and, you know, I, I got a, a news alert on my phone on Monday, which reiterated that Padraig Harrington, uh, 
remarked that he will not be playing at the uh, 2021 Ryder Cup. Well, you know what? Thanks for clearing that up because I'm sure all of us were very confused <laughs> as to whether or not Patrick <laughs> would be playing on the Ryder Cup squad. Yeah, we really needed to have that clarified. So uh, I, I guess that's true. someone got paid to write that, but yeah. <laughs> Very well said. I didn't. I no. So no. I didn't hear your comments on Sam Burns, but may, I'm sure the others will have something to say. So let's go to John next. And and for these comments from Vitra, he says, um, it, "No, I'm sorry. This is from Junkie." He says, "Is that LT's lake house in that picture in our background?" That's funny. And then Vitra said, "Too small, too small." Happy birthday, LT. <laughs> Happy birthday, indeed. So, <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah, John. Let's let's get your thoughts on the field as well, because I I do I do want to hear what you had to say about all these scenarios. Yeah. So you know, before the week, obviously you have to look at what happened at Kiowa the first time they played in 2012. I mean, I know it's a small sample size, but it could kind of give you somewhat of an idea of what kind of player you're looking for when you're doing your fantasy pools and picks and bets and whatnot. And obviously McElroy won, but the leaderboard was was littered with like random European guys. Like there was David Lynn, uh, Carl Peterson, um, Ian Poulter was up there. Just like lots of random Euros. And we, he had the same thing here this week with uh, Harrington finishing up there. Um, K, uh, Shane Lowry. I actually did take Shane Lowry for a drafting scenario. So that worked out well. Um you know, uh, Casey backdoor to top 10, like it, that's his, his MO. Um, so yeah, it was the same kind of thing. Like the Europeans, it was kind of a, a links, linksy style course, as, as you guys alluded to and players who could kind of control their ball and play in the wind really succeeded. Uh, Fitzpatrick, I had him too, as well on the DraftKings scenario and he was two under, um, and then he just triple bogeyed the 17th hole. On Sunday, just to, he just destroyed my lineup when he did that. But, um, well, you know, not completely, but th- there was a big hit. But in, in any event, an- again, another Euro that did well. So clearly this course in, in those conditions was made for guys that could, um, you know, really, you know, ball strike their way around and, um, you know, and, and play well under the wind. That's what made Shoffley's performance even more surprising because – he is one of the best short games in the world. And I don't know if you guys saw it on Friday. I think, believe it was the par five on the back nine. I think it was the 11th hole. He was just short of the green in two. And I think he took like a seven. He, like, he left like three chips at his feet. Like he'd hit the same shot like three times. And then finally got it on the green and made the putt for seven. And then he just butchered the last hole when he just needed a par to make the cut. And he's the kind of guy where like his, his thing is to make the cut like on the number or like one – under the cut line and then he'll play great on the weekends and get like, you know, tied for eight. He would have done what Abraham answer did like, in you know, well, I mean, maybe not seven under on, on Sunday. That was just an incredible round, but Shoffley would have got up into the top like 15 or so. I bet if he had made the cup, but very, very surprising. He's just, he's so steady and there's like not a weakness in his game. And that was just very disappointing. So I agree with that. Um, yeah. The, the tournament, like I referenced earlier, it was just kind of bizarre. Like there's no, like those, you know, elite names that you would expect to see on the top of the leaderboard. No one really could, could handle the conditions. Um, you know, McElroy couldn't get anything going. Spieth couldn't buy a putt. I mean, his his uh, strokes gained approach numbers were just tremendous, but he just could not putt at all. 
So, you know, just kind of an off week. And he's just a very good putter. So I wouldn't read too much into that. Just He just could not figure out the greens. Um, uh, DJ, like Mike had mentioned, just something's just not – he just might not be 100% at the moment. He just did not did not really show up. And uh, DeChambeau is just too erratic off the tee. He just, he just cannot find a fairway right now, and that's his problem. Um, and that's just not going to serve you well at this, this kind of course. So, yeah, it was just very weird in that, like, all these big names really didn't do much of anything. I mean, I guess you could say Kepka is really the only big name up there. But, you know, just two weeks ago, he couldn't even bend down to, like, pick up his ball out of the hole. Like, so how are you going to choose him for um, any, of these, any of these things? So, um, oh, and, and Victor Hovland, he was kind of disappointing. I know, I know a lot of people picked him heading into the weekend. I mean, he was okay. Like he started off well, but just really didn't get anything, um, get anything going after that. But you know, he, he's been playing so well lately. They, you know, doing off week. But again, I think it just goes back to this course was just really, really tough to figure out, especially with all the wins. And you guys talked about it, just constantly switching from day to day. Like in the first two days. And then the the winds completely changed the last two, and it was just hard to adjust. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if we'll get into a segment about the course, but definitely a, a worthy course to have a major for sure. And um, would definitely like to see the see them play this, play the PGA or keep this in the rotation, I should say, for PGA Championships. Um, just a, a, a great a great event and great course. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the, kind of my look at some of the other players in the field, and um, you know, it was a. Interesting, good week for the Euros. That's for sure. That's that's kind of my takeaway. Yeah, that's a good that's a good takeaway for sure. Um, I do want to spend some more time on this course because it really was quite interesting. It was really it was a real challenge, I have to say. And um, another guy, it was great. It was a great weekend for the Euros, except for one guy. I mean, John Rahm wasn't really a factor during the weekend too. So I was honestly very disappointed at that. I can't speak to exactly how bad he was, but maybe Andy can expound on that somewhat. But I was definitely hoping John Rahm would be more of a factor. But we know that he can be really shaky sometimes. Like if he doesn't start strong, he probably won't be heard from much on Sunday anyway. So um, I, I pretty much agree with everybody so far. So, Andy, let's go to you, and let's get your thoughts in the field. Uh, who who are the guys that stood out to you positively or negatively? Well, Rom finished tied for eighth because he backdoored on Sunday. Oh, is but, that right? Oh, okay, so he did end up yeah, he had a, Okay, he was a big baby on Saturday. He was like, "I don't want to be here. <laughs> I don't want to be here." That's like what he said. And then he got like four under on Sunday, and then he like, "I apologize for being a jerk on Saturday." But uh, I'll talk. I'll quickly talk about the course real quick because I, I meant to say it in the beginning. So, Kiowa. I, I looked. So when Rory won it, he won by like eight strokes. In second place, Lynn Dog, as John mentioned, David Lynn, he was minus five. So looking at the Phil at minus six and then minus four in the second place, like great. This almost had like a U.S. Open type of uh, scoring. You know, no one's going to win like, like 12 under, 13 under. You know, it's a major true test like par is going to be a hard number to post, you know, look at the final round, like no one in the top three um, shot under parks, you know, that was actually in contention besides the backdoor people, Kepka plus two, Louis plus one, Mickelson plus one. But um, what the hell was I going to say? Um, it's like, because of the wind, because of how hard the, the course was set up, uh, 
it's not like you were going to see anyone like light it up on the back nine on Sunday. Um, I think the early morning coverage, they need a fun house. Cause on Sunday morning, that was when answer was going low. Um, answer had like a crazy front nine. He ended up shooting seven under Justin Rose was putting on a crazy show on the front nine. Um, and, and when that was going on, like Scott man pelt, and some of the other guys were like, ooh, Kiwa. Like, so we could see, like, a lot of low scores. But then the day got a little longer, you know, morning turned to noon, and then the leaders teed off. And then, yeah, no one was going low in the, you know, the, the, the real leaders. Like, those guys going low in the morning, Anton Rose end up being more of an outlier than, you know, than the norm. But uh, some of the other guys – I was uh, rooting hard for Rory. Uh, him and Justin Thomas could not get any mojo together. Kepka was the other guy in that group. The thing about Justin Thomas is, yeah, uh, Mike said, of course, tailor-made for him, long hitter, good approach, putter, usually very strong. But I don't know if he uh, can handle the wind. He's just, he just seems like he's such a pampered fuck. Uh, him and his dad just groomed on that country club and in Kentucky or wherever he grew up. I think it was Kentucky, but um, he just, when things go South, he just doesn't seem like he can just like bury the crap that just happened to you for the last 30 minutes and focus on the present. He's like the opposite of Shane Lowry is John mentioned, uh, you know, you want to favor guys that can handle tough conditions, like people that grew up in the wind and the rain. So like the European guys in Great Britain and Ireland and the guys that play in Texas, because Texas is very windy. Someone like Shane Lowry, you look at Shane Lowry, he looks like someone that would love just to go fishing in 40 mile an hour wind and in the cold. He's like, he's a pig in the mud when he's playing in these tough conditions. Send him out to sea, send him out with the fishermen. He loves it. Someone like Justin Thomas, like, no, I can't play in the wind. <laughs> I can't play in the wind. And he's just like, I'm plus three after the first round. I don't want to be here. He just strikes me as someone that's like that. And, you know, let's get him next time. I'm going to go back and hit balls with my dad and eat my ice cream. Uh, DJ, yeah, I echo what the other guys have said. He's just, something's not right. I don't know if maybe he got injured skiing and he can't reveal it for like a contract scenario. I don't know, but yeah, something's not right with him. Uh, I was shocked at, you know, Kevin Streelman. Who's watching Kevin Streelman? I, I saw a tweet and, you know, it's tough to take the whole player impact program with 40 million, but you could either be like a phony and like get engaged in social media, or you can be just a complete milk toast player like Ke Kevin Streelman. And there's, there's, there's a happy medium. Uh, Finau, classic backdoor top 10. Ricky Fowler, classic backdoor top 10. I mean, God, I hate Ricky Fowler. <laughs> he was up to five at one point. It was unbelievable. Yeah, he, he, yeah because no, no one was – you know, Phil was in neutral doing just enough. And, you know, all those guys at minus two ended up becoming like showing up in the top five of the leaderboard. And all of a sudden you see Fowler. It's like utter, you know, Luke <laughs> had a great tweet. And he's like, classic Fowler, like student in the mentor, him and Patrick Cantlay are just like the kings of uh, backdooring in these events. Yeah, Cantlay, he's another guy that people had high hopes for. 
Um, he just, he, I don't think he did enough in the beginning. Uh, I'll expand on Hull, Victor Howland for a bit. I was, I, I was high on him. I had him in the one and done league. So I had him, uh, his third round, I think was the worst of the, the four rounds. The third round kind of fried his goose. The other guy that won in my league had Patrick Reed and Patrick Reed made the cut on the fucking number. Cause he birdied, he uh, teed off on 10 on Friday. So nine was his last hole. He birdied nine to make the cut. He ends up winning because Hovland didn't do anything on the weekend and Reed played really well Saturday and Sunday. So, I mean, that's golf. You make the cut on the number and you shoot well on the weekend and, you know, you secure a top five, you know, 15, top 20, make a bunch of money. Um, more Wikawa, we expected a lot out of him. He had a really good Sunday to backdoor a top 10. All these guys that kind of finished in the top 10 kind of kind of snuck in there. Um, but that, that's golf sometimes. It's just the way you can't, you know, you can't predict the weather, can't predict what's going to happen with the leaders. And, um, yeah, Rose had a great round on Sunday. Um, so, yeah, when you look at this leaderboard, you don't – it's void of a lot of the big guns. Lloyd, you know, no Xander Shoffley, no DJ, no JT. Rory was a major disappointment. Um, let's see who else, who else we might be missing. As for, like, Will Zalatoris, and I think – I think this might be his first time playing, so for this, you know – this event. So for him to even get in the top 10 was impressive. Harry Higgs getting the top five, very impressive. Uh, Sung JM had a really bad, I think either the second round or third round. So that's why he was tied for 17th. Yeah. We could just go on and on about some of these players, but it was a very, you know, the very tough course. No one was really tearing it up like for four days straight. And that's what you want in the major. Um, would you want a little more juice on Sunday? Perhaps, but uh, no one expected Phil to be as steady as he was. No one expected Kepka to putt as badly as he did. Uh, and I, like I said, I think Rory shooting a plus three on Friday was very unexpected. I am a sucker for uh, golfers like kind of, you know, horses for courses. So the fact that Rory had won at Kiowa before, the fact that Rory had just won at Wells Fargo, another course that he seems to always have good success. I, Rory was in, his form was great going into this event. So sometimes you can't always go by recent form either. Sometimes you just got to close your eyes and, and pick blindly too. Sometimes you just got to read who Mike likes and go and fade him. <laughs> You know, you know, that's true. Sometimes that we've Mike at Mike's Mike's mush can be very powerful in that scenario. Uh, I mean, I didn't give Phil any chance at all, but nobody else did, I guess is the thing. But I didn't think that Dan Hicks's prediction of him winning the U.S. Open was very interesting, was very fascinating because he basically got it right. But it was just he was just a major too early. So um, we're getting. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll say one more thing. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Nailed it. Like. I don't think people like the casual golf fan like doesn't really care about Oosterhuizen. I mean, they care how Mike pronounces it because Funhouse posts that video all the time, Oosterhuizen or whatever. But yeah, Lou is gonna kick, you know, gotta be kicking himself for 
losing this event because his putting on Sunday was bad. Yep. Uh, he just had too many water balls on Saturday and Sunday, and lo and behold, he loses by two strokes. Yep. And it's crazy. He has a really smooth swing, but when it gets tight, he has like the same miss as John alluded to. Uh, the water ball in Zurich, New Orleans, and then what we saw this weekend. And uh, the fact that he is never won on U.S. soil is crazy for this type of swing he has and the pedigree of a golfer is he's never won on U.S. soil. Hmm. I never knew that. That's interesting. So speaking of the soil, let's talk a little more about that course. Let's go back to, to Mike. And I, I do want to get your thoughts on on the ocean course. It definitely was a gnarly course. A lot of sand everywhere, a lot of water everywhere. You had a whole river on one side, and you had the ocean on the other. So it was it was crazy. So uh, there's a lot been there was a lot we've talked about. I mean, it, it definitely forced you to to take the make the most out of your your strategical st- skills, especially your short game. So. Mike, uh, let's let's hear more about this course because it was really a big factor. And so, um, any more thoughts as far as the ocean course? Well, I mean, I, I discussed this a little bit. Uh, I actually uh, somewhat extensively earlier, but I, I guess there is some more I can give you on it. Okay. You know the the story of how this course was built. I was actually listening to a couple podcasts about it. Is kind of crazy because what happened was is they're building it in the late 80s and it's like 1988 and of course the Ryder Cup is set for 91 and they had that famous Ryder Cup there in 91 so the only reason though that this is happening is because they were going to have the Ryder Cup at PGA West, the uh, stadium course where the American Express is, but then there was a problem with that. So while they're building this course, they're literally rushing to build, uh, to finish this course in time. And then Hurricane Hugo hits outside of Charleston and wipes out all of the work that they had done. But ironically, though, this gave it gave Pete Dye sort of an advantage after this happened, because when you're building in environmentally sensitive areas, which the near the coast is going to be and through those salt marshes, those are also environmental areas. There's a lot of regulation and stuff that you have to do, and I, I won't bore you guys with the details of that. But what essentially happened was is that the regulators were so busy with the cleanup for Hurricane Hugo that Pete Dye was able to do some things that he probably otherwise wouldn't have been able to do if they were really paying attention. Now, if this is a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. It kind of probably depends on your view on conservation and whatnot, and who actually knows how much damage or whatever it would have done. But it's something that would never happen today, right? Because the Ryder Cup is such a, it's such a big event and it's marketed so heav- uh, heavily. They would not go to a course where it's all right. Maybe it's sixty forty that they will finish this course in time for the Ryder Cup to be held here. Like that would never happen today. So, 
it, it is kind of a crazy background. Uh, you know, I, I do agree with Andy in terms of uh, Andy and John that right now it's not set up for any, it's not set in, uh, there's no next date, excuse me. There's no next date uh, for the ocean course currently in the writer, uh, in, in the writer cup, in the PGA championship schedule. However, there 2030 is open. So I'm hoping that like within the next year, we get an announcement that the 2030 PGA championship will be at the ocean course. Cause honestly, ideally this course should be hosting the PGA like every seven years or something. This asks just about everything you can ask of a player's game. It's really a sufficient challenge for the modern player. It's long enough that, you know, if we keep down this road for technology, now they had it tipped out at uh, 7,800 yards, which was the longest a course had ever been, but they never really played it that long, which does make sense uh, considering the wind conditions. But if technology keeps getting longer, they could do that. So, it's really something that should be hosting every seven years. I'd hope to see now that's not going to happen just because, uh, well, like I said, 2030 is the next open date. And also what the PGA is doing is they're, they're moving their headquarters to outside of Dallas and associated with that, they're building a course called PGA Frisco and PGA Frisco is going to host the 2027 and 2034 PGA Championship. So at least the plan is at this point, unless that course like bombs, that that's sort of going to be the home course of the PGA Championship. You'll see that every seven years and you'll um, have the rest of Naroda. But I'd be very disappointed, though, if we don't see an announcement saying, hey, 2030 PGA is at the Ocean Course. Yeah, I loved it. I, I It's been a while since I've seen the Ocean Course in a major. So I, I really think it was great. So uh, I do want to ask you one more question, though, before we go to John. Um, maybe I'll go back to you with it because I'm going to go to John first. But I'll return to you for this question as far as the crowd was concerned. But let's go back to John first and let's get your thoughts on the course. And yes, of course, the the sordid subject of the patrons must take, come into play too. Um, what were your thoughts on the course and the people at the Ocean Course, John? I mean, it's great to have the crowds back. I mean, at the end there, it was a little dicey. Like someone's about to tackle Phil as he's walking down the 18th <laughs> hole. Like it, it reminded me of um, like if you guys watch the old highlights of the Open Championship. Like they allow the galleries to kind of walk down with the leaders on the 18th 18th uh, fairway and around the green. And it, um, I remember like seeing Ballesteros and some of those other guys, just a crazy scene, just like a mob of people following him down the 18th hole. And that was, was what you got here. So that was pretty cool. And just in general, it was great to have um, fans back at a golf event. I know we've had it uh, like a, you know, just a, a little bit here and there over the last month as, as things have been, slowly but surely improving with the the COVID situation and you know we're seeing other sports now with, with fans back so it was good to have the fans back absolutely I think that added to it you know last year when Morikawa won it was obviously great to have a major tournament but just to have like have complete silence or just like a it's like at your random like Sunday men's club championship when you do putts <laughs> out for a win right. it's just not it's not 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 the greatest um so you know you could do it without the the idiots 
yelling and screaming stupid things after they hit their tee shots for sure. But just the energy of the crowd in general, you know, definitely missed that. And that was good to see, Um, you know, in terms of the course, I mean, really nothing else to add. I just, the, you know, it's obviously a a great test for the players. It it certainly tests every part of their game. Um, And, you know, it, you know, it's, it's long. You have to be accurate on your approach shots. You have to be a heck of a short game if you miss the green. And so, the, and, the, and the greens, they obviously can't make them too fast because with the wind, it would just be completely unplayable. So that's kind of the one thing that negates, like, bad putting, which made it even more surprising to see, like, guys missing, like, three-foot putts on these greens. But I guess that's just the major pressure for you. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, and, and, of course, it's, like, literally right on the ocean. You can see the waves – like breaking like literally right off the hole. I think I saw I remember Shane Lowry was on the beach, I think on the on the first hole he hit it so far right. He was literally on the beach. Um so yeah, you really can't get much better than that picturesque setting and then just the challenge of the course. Um it, it is kind of like the 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 beach version of Whistling Straits and obviously they're designed by the same same guy. I know Whistling Straits is on a lake, so it's, it's similar, but it's like the Atlantic Ocean version of, of Whistling Straits. It's a long, um, you know, water side course designed by Pete Dye. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I, I definitely hope they come back um, for, for majors. And I, I actually did not know that about the PGA Frisco. That's that's kind of interesting. They better hope that's not a bomb of the course. So did not did not know that that fact. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I, 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 I also was not aware of it. I wonder how... I'm just curious as to what a course like that would look like. It's kind of in the middle of a bunch of flat land, so... I mean, Texas courses can be nice. I, we'll see... I think we'll see a decent one coming up, I think, in, in the near future. But uh, let's go back to Andy. Let's get your thoughts on the course. Yeah, um... I learned... You know, you learn... You don't always learn something new every day. Depends if you're uh, embracing the soak or not free education in the breakfast thread, but I did learn something new today when Mike mentioned on that. I had no idea that the PGA West in Palm desert or La Quinta, if we're being technical, was going to host a Ryder cup in the late eighties or whenever, or 91. Um, and I can only imagine like that course. It's hard. It's hard for like the clown everyday golfer but the pros eat that course up um so i can't imagine hosting a Ryder cup but it was a different day and age and if you were to just like put a gun to my head and be like when was kiowa made i would have been like i don't know the 60s 50s 70s i didn't know it was like kind of a new resort um but i don't do my homework so so thanks mike for sharing that nugget i would never have guessed i thought war on the shore like that was an established property but i guess it wasn't well i i was just gonna say like war on the shore sounds like something from like 100 years ago so i i too was some was very surprised that it's only like a 30 some year old course yeah new i mean i guess there's i didn't know there's three other courses it's like a Mm -hmm. four golf course public you know, resort and a hotel. Like we could go there and play it for a fortune. But uh, I'm just like I said, I'm a sucker for golf courses on the water, uh, with the sun and the wind and 
the, the, the conditions and, you know, Nance gets off with his flowery language and low country, South Kakalaka. And uh, yeah, we gotta, gotta have more, more tournaments, more, it's not gonna get it every, you know, it's not gonna have be a regular tour stop on the PGA, but yeah, get, get more PGA championships, you know, flirt with the USGA, um, maybe have, you know, college events there, US amateurs, whatever it takes, more Kiwa. I mean, we could play it on the video game, but it, but it ain't the same. As for the fans, uh, you know, at risk of sounding like an old man yelling at the sky, like I'm just not a big fan of mashed potato, light the flame, ride the spiral type <laughs> of stuff. And now we're getting like, it's like a tag team. You get like one, you go, Phil! And then it's like, Wilson! It's just like, God, shut <laughs> up. I know. But it's never going to... That's not going away, unfortunately. Like, I love to have beers too, but you're not, you know, you're not gonna. I know, like, Francesa had this idea of like banned alcohol as sporting events. <laughs> no, that's never. People, it's a business. It's called bottom line. That's never gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't know. Maybe you could have stupid kids to uh, stupid people to stop having kids. That's never going to happen either. But right. uh, you just you just have to accept it, unfortunately. Um, but the the mics are only getting better. So as we know, because he kept the mics get play players get in trouble because the mics are so good now. So if players are getting in trouble for saying things under the breath, it's only gonna you know, you're only going to hear dumber things from people in the crowd. It's a good point. Just, the technology's improved a lot. Technology <laughs> is, is really good. But, uh, yeah, Kiwa, Kiwa was just as much of a star as Phil was. And I, I love that about certain golf courses. And I'm going to feel that way about Torrey Pines next month. You feel that way about Pebble Beach. You feel that way. I know everyone loves Southern Hills. I don't know enough about Southern Hills. Next year, I'll be soaked up into Southern Hills in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But, yeah, a lot of good golf courses out there. Yeah, and it is interesting how, like, new ones keep coming to the scene and they start to really make a, make their, make their, a name for themselves. So, Mike, uh, just any additional stuff as far as the fans at the event. Um, I'm probably not going to do... Oh, but, but yeah, let's, let's just go on that. Now, I'm probably going to skip a lot of the media coverage stuff this this time. But anyway, yeah, let's, let's hear it. Well, to follow up on Andy's point, you're going to get plenty of soaking next year at the PGA Championship because, of course, they took the PGA Championship away from Trump National Bedminster right. after Trump decided to incite an insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. <laughs> that apparently was the breaking point. So after that happened, they said, no more, no more. And the PGA championship was awarded to Southern Hills. So I guarantee you when this rolls around next year, you're going to get the usual crowd crying cancel culture, this, and it's not fair that and liberal media and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, you're going to hear a lot about Southern Hills. Uh, maybe not in the, so much about the golf course itself, but around the surrounding circumstances. So, and apparently there is a lawsuit for breach of contract, but I, I, I almost guarantee you that 
there's clauses in that contract that would allow them to do what they did without much of a problem. Um, So, but anyway, uh, about the crowd, look, I have no problem with people enjoying themselves. I have no problem with people showing enthusiasm, but was it just me or was there like a contest going on uh, to see who could scream the dumbest thing like right after a tee shot. It's not just mashed potatoes anymore or Baba Booey. It's just people just shouting out one liars that they think are funny, but it just. <laughs> and, you know, what? Uh, trust me, I, I, I'm the last person who can talk about people drinking too much because I probably drink too much, but whatever. We all have our vices. But uh, that crowd was just shit faced. I mean, you can tell. Yeah. And the PGA Championship, you for it's not for whatever reason. I'll tell you why I think the reason is. Um, I was at the PGA Championship two days in 2016, and I remember being there on, I think it was Thursday, and seeing people double fisting beers at like nine in the morning. So the PGA Championship always has this rowdy element to it. That's never going to quite go away. I don't think it really should go away. If people start doing things that are like actually disruptive, then you got to toss them out. But I don't know. It's kind of the the way the world is going. People try to draw attention to themselves and they do it by doing stupid stuff. So people are going to yell stupid stuff. They're going to yell stupid stuff. Uh, it's annoying. It's not the end of the world. But, yeah, there's a lot of that going on. Uh, not not to hijack the direction of the show, Dave, but are we going to do the uh, top ten golfers? or? Yeah, yeah, definitely, that? definitely. I, I think we could uh, – I mean, we're not going to do the media segment unless you really want to. Like, I, I just don't no, see – I mean, I, I couldn't really do the media segment. I was yeah. too much dropping in and out. So Yeah, I don't really have a lot to say. John, do you have anything to say as far as the, the media coverage? Yeah, I'll say a couple things. Okay. Um, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll just quickly. You cannot complain at all with the amount of coverage now. I think we talked about this last year. You now with ESPN on board, you pop on ESPN Plus in the morning. You saw John Daly looking like Santa Claus at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, you got. You know, you literally could watch every. Well, you didn't watch every shot because they didn't barely show any golf. You know that early, but you know they had coverage from like the first shot to the last putt of the day like i thought on thursday i mean the rounds were going so long i thought they were going to bail out of there at at like seven o'clock when they were supposed to they stayed on for another hour and like you saw club pros finishing up their rounds like they really went all into the coverage um at least espn did so in terms of the amount of coverage you cannot can't go wrong with that they showed you four featured groups every day at the feature holes um now the, the bad part of the coverage um the PGA Championship app and Shot Tracker completely sucks. Now I'm not asking you for, you know, the Masters where you could watch video of every shot, every player, but give me a little something better than an app that is so far behind, and it's you, it just doesn't update, and it's just you know you can barely. It's like the it's like a, a watered down version of the PGAtour.com Shot Tracker, which is okay, but at least they have like a 3D thing. This, this was just terrible. So they need to improve on that. And then the CBS coverage, I don't know what you guys thought. I thought it was horrible on Sunday. 
like you would you could look on the you could look on the lot the leaderboard that was so far behind and you would you would know like there's someone two holes ahead and cbs still hasn't updated the shot or shown it yet um and i understand like you want to captivate the moment with mickelson and everything else but um you could have shown guys playing the last few holes and you know how you know to see how the holes are going to play later in the day i just thought the coverage on sunday was just horrible um and cbs usually gets it gets it pretty right but i i don't think they did well at all in, in this regard um so some good some bad uh but overall um you know i definitely think they could have been better with with their coverage on sunday and like I said, the, the positive is the amount of coverage, uh, and they definitely need to do better with their app. We'll see. I, the U.S. Open, I remember, was not very good with theirs either. So we'll see what they have in store for for next month. You know, I got to me, I got to agree. I I thought, I don't know if it was just I didn't feel very, I didn't really feel very satisfied with the coverage either. I, I the CBS in particular. I can't speak to the earlier coverage, but it, it just wasn't it just wasn't clicking with me. I I don't know. It's hard to explain. But it just didn't feel like you were there a lot of the time. I barely heard Jim Nance during most of the round, which maybe that's just my own fault, but I wasn't feeling it. So I went. I agree, John. Uh, Andy, any other thoughts that you wanted to share with us as far as the media? Um, I actually, uh, Thursday and Friday, I actually didn't get to watch as much as I could because I, I was in the office and my boss kind of sucks and she to pick my spots and i didn't get to work from home like i thought i would oh I, hate that. On. and then when i was home i was on a zoom call with said boss so i had the sound off but john was right like that friday that's when i was actually able to watch a bunch of friday afternoon friday evening coverage they were showing everyone trying to make the cut showing those last groups at like probably close to eight o'clock on the east coast um but yeah the the app was slow, like the leaderboards weren't refreshing, you know, first world problem, but like, come on, refresh. And then I, I like Scott Van Pelt. I think he's pretty good with the golf. Uh, I didn't hear Nance on Thursday and Friday. I'm guessing he did the morning coverage on ESPN. But uh, as for the Sunday coverage, it's almost like if they had a production meeting, which I maybe they do, I assume they do. They, they might have, like, kind of the opposite of hedge, put all the eggs on a – they put all their eggs in, like, the Kepka Mickelson, like, just them. It's just going to be Kepka and Mickelson. Uh, they're going to run away with it, mono a mono, and they almost put their eggs in that basket, and then, like, oh, well, they're not running away with it. Um, and now we aren't really – our resources devoted to like Ustazen and Streelman and the other guys behind them, uh, they, they couldn't show their shots as in real time as they could have. And then they try to like overcorrect it at the end. And next thing you know, you're watching Fowler uh, <laughs> come off, you know, let's watch Ricky Fowler play his last three holes. Like who cared? They made a big deal of the Fowler Spieth pairing for some reason. Um, oh, they thought Spieth could make a run, but yeah, as, as you guys alluded to earlier, Spieth just couldn't get any putts rolling on the final round. But yeah, I uh, actually didn't even hear enough Dottie Pepper over the weekend to criticize her. So 
Until next time. <laughs> Very well. I think that's as much as far as I we Dave, need to Dave, I want to jump in with one more thing. Oh, go sorry. Ahead. I forgot sorry, to sorry, sorry, this earlier. Um, I thought David Duvall was excellent. And oh, okay. I think if NBC was smart, they'd get rid of Azinger for Duvall. Now, I don't know if it's just because, like, I'm hearing him in a limited capacity and he could, like, really annoy me like Azinger does. But just from the limited amount I saw on um, – ESPN and then what he does on the golf channel. I think he's he's great at this, and I I, I definitely think he would would do a good job as like a full time analyst. That's just my opinion. Again, I could completely just be basing that off too small a sample, but um, that's just my feeling. I should I didn't really hear a lot of him on um on that on that coverage, but I look forward to hearing more of him later because uh, that sounds like a big, um, yeah. I mean. I trust your judgment in that certainly, and so let's let's go back to Mike. And before we get into the uh, top ten discussion, I did want to get your thought on on the incident between um, uh, Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau in what was not supposed to be on the air, but somebody leaked it. Um, the the interview on Golf Channel well, it was supposed to be on Golf Channel, but then Bryson passes by him and he gets all pissed off over it. <laughs> so let's get your thoughts on that scenario. I mean, that is one of the great bits of leaked footage. <laughs> and certainly, I, I think it's sports history. I mean, it just it, it cuts through all the bullshit and all the all the ways that people will try to prevent themselves and just really shows you what's going on truly behind the scenes and how people feel about other people. And, you know, what's great about that clip is that if you watch in the very beginning of it, you see that Kepka is like looking off to the side and then immediately rolls his eyes before a um, before a question is even asked. Right. Right. <laughs> of course, the, the the second DeChambeau walks by, you see him just close his eyes and just have this look <laughs> of absolute frustration. <laughs> and then just to make the comment, he's like, lost my train of thought with that fucking bullshit. So <laughs> the thing is, I, I couldn't make out if uh, DeChambeau actually said something to him or if DeChambeau was just talking to himself or anything. But, you know, what? I, I, I really hope the USGA just says fuck it and puts those two guys in the same group for the first two days of the U.S. Open. I mean, come on, that would be absolute must-watch TV. And, I mean, hey, remember the USGA, they put, like, three fat guys in the same group and people <laughs> thought it was insensitive when they had, uh, like, uh, Brendan Dion, Kevin Stadler, and I forget who the other guy was in the same group. I mean, if they're willing to do that, they've got to be willing <laughs> to throw DeChambeau and Kepka in the, uh, you know, in the same group. That would be great to see. Um, you know, I, I do wonder who, uh, unfortunately the clip is gone now. The, uh, oh, really? Oh. Yeah, the, I mean, it, it's owned by NBC and they put in a copyright claim. So it is now down. I mean, I'm sure some people have it. Uh, plenty uh. of people I'm sure see it, but it was there. We all got to see it. You know, one of the funny theories I heard was that it's obviously said in jest was that the real reason that DeChambeau, uh, you know, bulked up was that after him and Kepka got into that big argument about uh, DeChambeau's playing pace, that he did he bulked up so that it wouldn't be so easy for Kepka just to kick the shit out of him if they ever came to blows. So I don't know. 
that, that would be a pretty interesting fight to watch. They are pretty uh, big guys, both yeah. of them. So yeah. just fingers crossed that the USGA, um, you know, uh, puts uh, maybe, I don't know, this feeling trying to be proper aside and just gives us what we want. I love this. This is they got to happen. I don't, it doesn't have to be in a major. Just make it happen. Just put them together. Oh, you you want this in the U.S. Open? Oh my goodness, that that is going to be television for me. Okay, so that's a great idea. <laughs> um, can we close the, the the thread as far as Dan Hicks and his great prediction? He just got it an entire major early. Like, do you give him credit for that, Mike? I, oh. I, I, I don't know really. No, um, just. I mean, listen, look, he said, you know, I think Phil can win the U.S. Open. Right. We were both kind of like, eh, no, right. but Phil won the PGA championship on a course that, you know, frankly, it did play like a U.S. Open because the winning score was six under. It was a par 72. That means the winning score is 282 on a par 70 four days. The winning score is two over. So, um. I guess you give him a little credit. Now, Phil's not going to win the U.S. Open, no. but, uh, yeah, it was certainly uh, one of those, uh, wow, that was kind of interesting moments. Yeah. All right, so let's get to the uh, top ten discussion. I would say this, because you were asking, you know, you were speculating that because of this win, Mike, that Phil is now solidly in the top ten of all time, and I agree with I you. don't think he is in the top ten, but oh, you don't. go on with your point. Oh, no. interesting. He's, he's very close, but I don't think he is. Ah, okay. I thought you were going to go there. Well, I I thought that there was a chance he'd be in there anyway, even before this tournament. But certainly, he's got an amazing case now. I mean, it's hard to win an event that old. I mean, even Tiger winning when he was, you said, 42. I mean, that, that in and of itself was remarkable, just to think of anybody that old winning a major. And the Masters is certainly not the easiest thing to win. So, I, I mean, it's a very interesting discussion. I, I think what he's done for his for um, Mickelson's legacy, what he's done for his own legacy in winning that tournament is enormous. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at, I think, and, and I agree with it. So I'll give it to you as far as your thoughts as far as uh, all-time top ten now. All right, well, I'll run through it very quickly and then I'll get into more about Phil. So I would go Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods, Ben Hogan, Bobby Jones, Sam Snead, Arnold Palmer, Tom Watson, Gary Player, Byron Nelson, Lee Trevino. That's my top 10. I have Walter Hagen 11, Phil Mickelson 12. Now, I think the top three is very clear. Some order of Nicholas Woods, Hogan. Then I think four through eight, Bobby Jones, Snead, Arnold Palmer, Tom Watson, player. I don't think anyone's going to have any of those guys outside of the top 10. Where it gets very interesting is this next group, which Nelson, Trevino, Hagen, Mickelson, Seve, Gene Sarazen, Nick Faldo, and then if you want to go back to Harry Varden, maybe you can have Harry Varden. The reason I don't have Phil in the top 10 is I look at Byron Nelson. Byron Nelson won 11 straight tournaments and he won 18 tournaments in a year. Byron Nelson played with Hogan and Sneed, and he retired early in his like early 30s. Byron Nelson was the best of with competing against Hogan and Sneed. He had dominance in a way that Phil never had dominance. Now, I don't want to get into the whole which era is 
better. Although if you want to make that argument to put Phil in the top 10, I, I guess you could. And then Trevino. Trevino also won six majors. You know who finished second in four of those majors? Jack Nicholas. Think about that. Jack Nicholas finished second in four of the six majors that Lee Trevino won. He beat Jack Nicholas four times in majors, went head to head with them and beat him. Did Phil ever beat Tiger? No. No. That to me puts Trevino in the top 10. And also the fact that Trevino is, besides Hogan, maybe the purest ball striker of all time. Listen, it, it's just, it, it's a very, very difficult list to get on. Um, if you want to get into which era is better, I mean, do I think, do, who do I think is a more talented player, Gary Player or Phil Mickelson? It's Phil Mickelson. But Gary Player won nine majors and won the career Grand Slam. How do I keep Gary Player off the list and, uh, for him? So that's my top 10. I think Phil is very close. But the problem is, is that you just have these eight guys that I think have to be on the list. Then you have Byron Nelson, who had the most dominant season ever and has five majors. You have Trevino with his record against Nicholas and the same number of majors, also playing in the 1970s, where just the it wasn't as deep, but the top level competition was incredible. And then Walter Hagen won 11 majors. Now, I can see tossing Hagen off because you get to this whole problem of, OK, but back then, in some cases, the amateur tournaments were better. So how good were the majors? So if you want to put Phil 11, fine. But uh, I, I don't know. Can I really put him ahead of Nelson or Trevino? I don't, you know, the thing is, if Phil had won that 2006 U.S. Open, he would have won three majors in a row because mm-hmm. he won the 05, um, the 05 PGA. He won the 06 Masters. If he had won three consecutive majors, he'd have to be in the top ten along with this, but he didn't. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's a knock on him, but I'd, uh, I could see switching him with Hagen, but I, I can't put Phil ahead of Trevino or Byron Nelson. That's just my thoughts. Well, your command of golf history really has really brings a lot of credibility to your listing. And I think that's, that's what to be well commended. So I'm going to let the other guys tackle that too. I can't answer that at all. I have no idea what golf was like 50 or 60 years ago, like you would, Mike. So I shouldn't even attempt that list. But I certainly agree with a lot of what you said. So uh, let's go to John. If you were to tackle a top 10 list, how would you play that? Oh, man, Dave. I'm not even going to try to pretend like I know as much as Mike does about some of those um, classic players, like off the top of my head. Like, I honestly just – I'm going to trust his list. I mean, just – you know, obviously you have – Jack, Tiger, um, you know, Hogan, Sneed, Watson. Uh, I, I think, I don't know, Mike, was Arnold Palmer on your list? I'm sorry. I was like half half paying attention or half listening. Sorry. Um, I had him six, yeah. Okay, that's what I figured. Yeah, I figured he was on there. Um, but, yeah, like some of those, those guys, like he was mentioning towards the end of the list, it's just like, you know, obviously we have no frame of reference because we weren't alive see them play in their prime so i don't know like in terms of like my lifetime phil's definitely one of the top 10 golfers for sure uh of all time like i don't know um I, i'm not gonna even try to t- tackle that uh he's de- he's definitely up there he's definitely in he's in the conversation now 
Um, if he were to win, like, say he won next month at Torrey Pines, like, they might push him into the – to get the complete the career slam and, like, winning it at a second straight major at 50. You know, that would be pretty amazing. Like, they would push him into the – definitely into that conversation. But – or, like, definitely into the top 10, rather. But I don't know. Like, I'll, I'll go with um, – Mike's analysis and say he's just he's just kind of just outside of the of the top ten. But again, it's it's hard to quantify for myself anyway, just because I, I had never saw Byron Nelson or um, you know some of these other guys play. It's just it's just hard. So I'll I'll, I'll go with his judgment on this one. Yeah, you know Arnold Palmer is another good example. Like I never saw him in his prime. Like I I never even saw the tail end of his prime. Really, I think by the time I started watching any kind of golf when I was very young, like he was already on the senior tour. So I, I definitely can't speak to what he did in the moment, but I know what he did in retrospect. And it was, it was, it was phenomenal. Certainly he did belong in the top 10. So um, I'm pretty much in agreement with both of you. Andy, if you would like to tackle the top 10, I will give you the floor. What do you think? I ain't going to tackle the top 10. I'll just ramble about it for a couple <laughs> seconds. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's subjective. Like, why? Why the top guy does it? I don't, I don't. <laughs> no, because like, I don't. I don't really know anything about Tom Kaido. Only that he looked like Elton John in the seventies. Seventies <laughs> era golf looked so amazing because yeah. you had haircuts, weird clothes, just people in the sixties too. People smoking. It's just a weird time, you know. Jack Nicholas when he started in the fifties with the crew cut and then Jack Nicholas in the seventies with like the long hair. Anyway, I'm going off topic, but, um, with Phil, you know, he's, I don't, I wouldn't even put him, I wouldn't put him in the top 10 right now. Um, it's funny that Mike mentioned Harold Varner, you no, know, Harold Varner, the third is the current golf who I, I don't, I know Varner or Varner, whatever his name is, but he, uh, Jaime Diaz from the Golf Channel was on Dog to actually talk about the top 10 and he was like you have to put Varnar on the top 10 because he was like you know b- the Babe Ruth of golf granted right now he this is not me talking it's Jaime Diaz like Mike Trout's a better baseball player than Babe Ruth but Babe Ruth was the king back in the 20s like there's a, probably a lot of better golfers than Varner but Varner was like the first to do it back in the day. And I know uh, Sneed won all those, like Sneed won 82 or whatever. And Byron Nelson won like 11 in a row. Like it was a different error. Um, so Mickelson supplant any of the old guys from the black and white era is just too hard to do. It's too hard to do because those guys are, were legends. And obviously the, you know, the original big three with, Gary, Jack, and Arnold, like Phil's not supplanting those guys and, and you know, he's not taking Tiger as as you guys just pointed out. Like that's a great fact. Like Mike, you should call up dog with that. Like the Trevino majors that he won with Phil is with uh what's it call it with Nicholas is, is number two. Like, yeah. Tiger Phil never won his majors when, you know, Tiger was like right under him so phil great career not taking anything away from him god damn it all those majors but top 10 is top 10 
want to do top 10 NBA players? I mean, we can. No, 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 please. <laughs> but golf, I think, is an interesting conversation because you've got tangible data to work with. and it, it is, yeah. I mean, if you could really break it down, I mean, you could take out the Excel spreadsheet and the V lookup because it is an individual sport. So you really probably could do it if you really wanted to dig into the data. You could probably turn the subjective activity into something really objective. Yeah, I, I, that's uh, that's sports, as they say. So um, I think that is that everybody. I think we did tackle this from everyone. So um, that's pretty much. We're getting close to the end of our time here, so we can do a little bit on the road ahead. But I mean, the biggest thing I can think of is like the Charles Schwab and the workday and stuff like that. Um, so, Mike, I'll give it to you and, and let us uh, to, to share what's what's coming up. Well, we actually do have a pretty good stretch coming up, at least, I think. Uh, okay. Yeah, Charles Schwab at Colonial. That It's usually a pretty good tournament, yeah. a lot of history at this place. Then we have the uh, Memorial, which is at Jack's Place, and that's always a good event on a really good course. Also, after the Memorial last year, Jack redesigned the course and like did a lot of work on it. So that'll be interesting to see w- what was done there. And then there's that uh, Palmetto Championship at Congaree, which is not far from the Ocean Course, uh, much further inland, though. And that course is a top 100 course in the country. And that's going to be a one-off replacing the Canadian Open. So that'll be worth checking out. Um, should be a pretty interesting event. And then we have the U.S. Open, obviously. And uh, following that is the Travelers. So, you know what? We really have, uh, I think, five good tournaments coming up in a row here. So this is a good stretch of golf. Then we kind of get into that, like, couple-week lull before the Open Championship. But, uh yeah, next month we uh, should have some good golf to turn it uh, tune into. No, I stand corrected on that because I remember that the Colonial last year was a banger. That was a good tournament. So I have to remember that to, to tune into that one this year. And um, and then you mentioned the the Memorial, and that was the solid course. So I, I like that too. So uh, certainly beats what happened in the previous leg, right? When we some of those events where that like, guys had like 24, 25 under something like that. I'll take that over what we had before. Uh, John, any, anything you want to add as far as the road ahead? Yeah, it was, it was a banger last year because it was, this was the first tournament out of the COVID break. And like literally every, like all the top golfers were just chopping at the bit to play. So they all showed up here for this tournament um, so that's why it was such a, it's still a pretty good field for considering the week after a major. So I'll give you three picks, Dave, who I bet outright, uh, wagers on. Okay. Morikawa, answer, Corey Connors. Those are the three bets I made. So we'll see if any of those come through, uh, for me this week. Um, yeah. Do you want the, the accurate ball strikers for this course? I'm a little worried about guys that like were beat up at that course for four days um, so maybe you look at someone who maybe missed the cut last week or maybe you know, really didn't play great and didn't like kind of feel the, I guess, pressure on Sunday. But, um, those are, those are, that's who I'm leading with for my, for my picks or my outright bets this week. But yeah, I, I agree with Mike. Nice stretch of golf coming up. I just got my tickets for the travelers championship the other day. They are allowing 10,000 fans in a day. So I made sure to go on and get those. It's going to be in some nice courtyard seats with, Food and beverages included. Ooh. There won't be as many mangoes there this year because of the limited capacity. So I might actually get to watch like Dustin Johnson up close or whoever it is up close. So it should be 
should be fun times. So the next time we're on here talking about the U.S. Open recap, I'll be at the Travelers Championship the next couple of days. So, yeah, definitely a good um, a good month of golf coming up, and yeah, should be should be uh, plenty of good action on the weekends this, this next month or so. It's nice that you're getting back out there. That's really cool. Like, I'm excited for you. Yeah, I can't wait. I've actually on my first live sporting event since the pandemic, wow. so it should be fun. That will for sure. All right, Andy, let's get your thoughts on the road ahead. Yeah, I uh, I'll be into this tournament Memorial Day weekend. Watch some golf, play some golf, do other stuff. But uh, um, it's funny because I, I I text with John I get Colonial. I get the Dallas events mixed up sometimes because one's the Byron Nelson Invitational or whatever Byron Nelson Classic, and one's obviously called the Colonial. But the Colonial is a wicked old tournament, and Ben Hogan's won a bunch of times. So I get Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson confused sometimes. So I deserve a fun house, but this is an old tournament and the field is strong. A lot of Texas guys are in it. Answer, Scotty Scheffler, Fatty Reed, Jordan Spieth. So uh, look for some of those guys to hang around and be in contention on Sunday. Um, And then, yeah, the Jack's tournament, I read that at some point he wants to like move that date because the field's slowly getting weaker or maybe he wants to move the honda back to a better date one or the other i know jack's been kind of chirping that his you know his events aren't getting as the strong fields like they used to because of the position on the calendar so it might have been the honda i don't know but um you know the the memorial tournament's always good I guess in that part of Ohio, there's always chances of thunderstorms. So I hope they don't push back to push up the tea times that weekend. That's always annoying. And Dave, I know you're a big food guy that the uh, Memorial, you know, Murfield village, that golf course is famous for their, um, their milkshakes. That's a true story. Uh, You could Google that if you wanted to. Um, The other, the the players love their milkshakes at Murfield. Um, So I'll be in that tournament. Yeah, U.S. Open is right around the corner. As our friend Mike said, you know, golf season's over when the U.S. Open happens. But for us, like the people that play, like golf season's really just starting to crank up at the end of June. But in terms of like, yeah, big events, especially now with the calendar the way it is, yeah, then you only have one more major. And then it's like, yeah, the money grab FedEx, they play for a million, millions and millions of dollars, but it's a money grab. But we'll, we gamble, we're degenerates. We'll, we'll be into all the golf events for the rest of the summer. Even, you know, the freaking uh, Rocket Mortgage Classic and the fucking 3M up in Minnesota. <laughs> the Wyndham and Greensboro. Like, oddly, you can make an argument besides the, after, uh, not including the U.S., uh, not including the, the Open, the British Open, like the Travelers is like the best tournament after the U.S. Open um, because, the, you know, it's a fun course and the field's always strong. And then I I don't get into the John Deere. I don't – those Midwest events in the summer just – they're tough watches. But like I said, we'll, we'll gamble on them, so we'll have to watch them. But uh, – I like the travelers and happy that John gets to go and, and see all the guys up close. Yeah. That's, that's some good. That's pretty cool. So that'll wrap it up for the most part with our, with our show tonight. So we'll give it to everybody for some final thoughts and to start, we'll go to Mike in North Jersey. 
Well, I think we've said almost uh, everything that needs to be said about um, what was witnessed this past week. Obviously, a historic occasion, one that you know broke a record that I think a lot of people thought would never be broken, and that was uh, Julio's Boros being 48 years old and being the oldest major winner, and Phil Mickelson at nearly 51 years of age um, doing the seemingly impossible and winning the PGA Championship. You know, uh, we, we've been doing this show now with you, Dave, or it's your, your show. You've been nice enough to invite us on for 10 years. And I think that, you know, that there's a few tournaments that we're really going to remember uh, from this run, uh, this last decade of golf, which has really been, you know, it, it, it's been a tremendous time for the game where, you know, obviously we had the Tiger and Phil era and those two were great. Uh, you know, as we just talked about Tiger, clearly, you know, at worst you could have him third, but he's probably first or second if you're really going to do a ranking. Um, and then Phil right in the top 10. But, you know, after that, you had Vijay Singh get hot for a, a couple of years. But after that, there wasn't so much depth. But um, there really was just this explosion of depth of players in starting in 2010 with McElroy coming along and Dustin Johnson coming along and then Jordan Spieth coming along and then Brooks Kepka coming along, all winning, uh, all winning multiple major championships. And then, you know, besides that, you had Bubba Watson's won a couple and Louis Oosthuizen has a win in five seconds. And you've really just seen this era of just a lot of really, really good golfers not quite as maybe as top heavy as the seventies, but just this real depth of, I don't know, 10 or 15 guys who are capable of winning multiple major championships. And, you know, even though I, I'm not a Tiger Woods guy as you know, everyone obviously knows that who's listening to me talk about him, to see in the last couple of years to see Tiger Woods past his best, uh, have a tournament and, uh, win a major championship against this current era. And then to see Phil Mickelson turn back the clock in frankly, even much more improbable fashion and be able to beat this era of golfers and be able to beat the guy who's been at least in the last uh, three, four years, the most dominant golfer in major championships, uh, Brooks Kepka. You know, it, it's moments like that, that you really, that you write about and that you talk about and that really live on, uh, forever, you know, sort of like the 86 masters. So, uh, this was a special event. There's no doubt. And, um, you know, it's, it's one that we're all going to remember watching and it, you know, it's one that I'm sure all of us were looking forward to talking about today. So it was great talking about it. Yeah, very much. So yeah. I, I, I was, I was certainly excited to hear what you guys had to say about what was really been in a monumental, a monumental moment for golf and, and certainly for Phil, so let's go to John and get your final thoughts as well, reflecting on what was just an incredible tournament and an incredible win. Yeah, I don't think we have anything much else to add. I mean, just, you know, like I said earlier, like we'll remember this tournament for a long time. It's just one of those deals. Like you'll remember where you were when you saw Mickelson scroll down the 18th and tap it in to win a major at 50 years old. And it's just, you know, you never thought you'd see something like that. And it's just, uh, it's an improbable win. And, um, you know, just a testament to 
why the game of golf is so great. Like he can, you know, someone can win a major at 50 years old and, um, you know, we'll see if it ever happens again, but, uh, it, it could be a record that's never, you know, won't be broken. Maybe he'll win when like 52, who knows? Um, so yeah, what an incredible week and it's definitely fun to come on here and talk about it with you guys. And just on a quick, like side note, you see, there's a new capital one, the match being planned with, uh, uh, Tom Brady and Nicholson is going up against Bryson and Aaron Rodgers, which should be interesting. Like based off that, like the beef that Brooks and Bryson were having, they need to swap Phil out and get Brooks in there. Like, yeah, I'm with it. We just saw you win like the, the PGA. Like we know you love this stuff. Well, let's get Brooks in there for some for some fun. They should they should make that swap immediately or do do something like yeah, like Mike said, pair them up for the U.S. Open. Then like, we got to get some. We gotta we gotta sit and throw fists here on, on the course basically. They <laughs> legit do not like each other. I don't think it's manufactured. I no, think they no. hate each other, which yeah. you love to see it, honestly. I, you know, it gives you the tour some great juice. One hundred percent. So with all that in the with all that in mind, let's go to Andy for the final word. Yeah, a couple quick hitters. So I think it's real too. I mean, Kepka the disdain in that first video is, is beyond palpable, but you know, we have all these experts and so it's like, oh, they're definitely fake and they're definitely just doing it for the player impact program. They're, it's all fake juice. But having said that, like, if you're, if it continues, it's going to be re- like, I wouldn't want to be Steve Stricker because Steve Stricker is going to have like, all the Mongo media people are going to ask him about the feud leading up to the Ryder Cup and Stricker is just going to have to give the most blank, oh, we're fine. Every clubhouse is fine. There's no, you know, no team chemistry impacts negatively. We all like each other, but we'll see how that festers, hopefully naturally. Um, but uh, I was one last thing when, when Mike was breaking down like the different type of tournaments and like the ones that have juice you'll remember than the ones that you remember just because of the sheer margin of victory. Uh, I know that he did not include the 2014 U.S. Open won by Martin Keimer, because Martin Keimer is the most boring. He's one, you know, cause he, he plays golf like a German BMW efficient, no nonsense. But uh, that, I remember that 2014 us open because Tommy was like, why are you even DVRing this? I'm just going to spoil it for you. Keimer won and it's boring and there's no juice. Uh, you guys remember <laughs> the 2014 us open in, at Pinehurst no one remembers Keimer winning by whatever it was, the eight, 10 strokes, nine strokes, because it's Martin Keimer. That's all. Well, that's all. <laughs> well, thanks for the sentiments. Yeah, I, I, I literally didn't. I literally forgot that. And we did a spot for it. So it's like I we did a spot for that. And I totally forgot that it happened. So that just gives you. Look the- at the leaderboard. It's funny because, yeah. You'll you'll see. Oh, this guy made the top ten. Of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for for doing this, everybody. Have a great rest of your weekend. Uh, we'll be back again, hopefully, pretty soon for the uh, U.S. Open recap. Take care, guys. Thanks, Dave. Take care, guys. All right, fellas. You guys. Everyone, peace. Take it easy. All right. Well, that's our. Sh- that's uh, that's that was great. Thanks, everyone. Mike in North Jersey, John in Connecticut, Andy in Seattle. This has been a really fun time. So I want to thank all of you guys for tuning in, everybody, whether it was on YouTube with video or whether it's here on the podcast with just the audio. 
Um, I really appreciate you, your continued support of the DipCal program. The city thanks you for your for your participation. So to say goodnight for now, I think we have a very interesting show next week, potentially. I'm going to reach out. We've been talking about it already in messages. And I think Captain and, and Biebs want to do a random questions. So we will honor that. I want to do random questions next week, both of them. We'll, we'll, hopefully the next time you hear from me, it'll be with those two. And it'll be full on random questions time with both of those guys. Well, stay tuned on the Twitter for more on that. Um, at DidCow. On the web at didcow.com and look for Dave in the City Out West on Apple Podcasts. We will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>